This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The Nativity According to Abbe Constant-Henri Fouard, Episode 2. We want to welcome you to Episode 2 of the Return to Order Moment's Christmas gift to our listeners. Taken from The Christ, the Son of God. A Life of Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by Abbe Constant-Henri Fouard. Last week, we brought you the events surrounding the Annunciation, Visitation, and Dreams of St. Joseph. This week, we will pick up Father Fouard's narrative and take our listeners through Mary and Joseph's trip to the city of David, the Nativity, the visit of the shepherds, and the presentation of baby Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. So we begin with... Part 5. The Trip to Bethlehem Christian tradition has always shrunk with horror from the thought that Mary, whose taintless blood had mingled with the blood of a god, could ever have forfeited the purity of God's tabernacle, the habitation of his overshadowing cloud, and the Ark of the Lord. St. Matthew's only thought here was to emphasize the miraculous nature of her maiden motherhood and to declare the fulfillment of Isaiah's prediction that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Nazareth, which was to be the abode of Jesus for many long years, did not witness his birth. The prophecies had reserved that glory for Bethlehem and the whole world, at the destined hour of his birth, was disturbed that these predictions might be accomplished. In those days, says the sacred text, an enrollment of the empire brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, the edict which prescribed it emanating from Augustus. This prince, at that time, held the whole world in his sovereign grasp. The adopted son of Caesar... He had inherited his projects, and of these, the most considerable and wide-reaching in its consequences consisted in a registration of the Roman world. Even the allied kingdoms must needs make this act of submission, and St. Luke informs us that its performance was brought about in Judea at the time in which Jesus was born. This first enrolling, he adds, was made by Quirinius, governor of Syria. Now the Israelites were in the habit of taking an account of their population, not in their place of residence or birth, but by assembling themselves according to the family and the tribe whence each one had sprung. A muster of Judea, therefore, was nothing less than a revision of the genealogical table. These precious archives were carefully kept and highly treasured by the particular city which was by way of being regarded as the first fatherland of each family. David was born at Bethlehem. It was to this town, therefore, that Joseph must betake himself, for he was of the tribe and family of the great king. So then, To inscribe himself in the public registers, the carpenter of Nazareth quitted his native hills of Zabulon. His young wife, too, made the journey with him. Everything drew her to Bethlehem, 
a secret inspiration from heaven, as well as her affection for Joseph. Perhaps, too, there was some obligation for her appearance in person at the enrolling, as being the heiress of her family. Four days of foot travel separate Nazareth from the city of David. Mary, as her time was so near, made the distance very slowly, for winter makes the roads rough, and the holy family journeyed on foot, doubtless like the other poor pilgrims, leaving behind them the plain of Estralon, Enganim, Sebem, and Sion, about two hours from the last-named town, they perceived at length the dwellings of Bethlehem. This village is located upon a long and whitish hill, whose slope, covered with vines, olives, and fig trees, forms a circle of terraces, rising one above another in regular curves, like the steps in a stairway of verdure. On the summit rests today a heavy pile of somber buildings. It is the Church of the Nativity, which screens the Holy Grotto, and round about it are three convents built by the Latins, the Greeks, and the Armenians. From these heights, at a glance of the eye, we can descry, far below us, the fertile valleys, the ancient domain of Boaz and of Jesse, the faraway pasture where, protecting their herds from the mountain lions, there had grown up that intrepid race of shepherds which once supplied Israel with the noblest of her captains. Part 6. The Nativity of Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ As Joseph and Mary entered Bethlehem, they would first encounter the hostelry. The concourse of strangers in those busy days of the registration the poverty of these latecomers, the very condition of Mary, all promised the humble pair a cold welcome. So it happened that they received the reply that there was no room for them, and despite their fatigue, they must needs seek elsewhere for some resting place. The chalk hills of Judea are honeycombed with innumerable caves. One of these excavations, close by the inn, was used as a shelter for such beasts as the public stables were unable to accommodate. Mary, according to the testimony of tradition, could find no other refuge but this. And there, amid the straw which served as bedding for the beasts, far from all assistance, on a cold winter's night, the hour came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth into the world Jesus. Here there is no outward pomp. All the glory of the crib lies in its inherent loveliness. It is only the soul that is illumined by it. Tis to the heart alone it speaks. Furthermore, we must not forget that here, by anything we add to the majesty of the Christ, we detract just so much from his love. The word, in order to save us, has not disdained the womb of a virgin. Why, then, should we blush at the lowliness of our God? 
the more profound it appears, the more it forces us to love him. Nevertheless, though Mary knew all the natural cares of motherhood, she was yet unacquainted with those evils which are the penalty of sin, the sorrows and heavy-heartedness into which all daughters of Adam must fall. We should not even say that her motherhood was like that of Eve in the Age of Innocence, for she was a greater than Eve, so hers was the unparalleled happiness of preserving her virgin purity in bearing the divine child. When Jesus was born, it was as when the ripe fruit is parted from the branch that bore it, so cheerful, so comfortable, and attended with all joys was the coming of the Christ child into the world. So St. Luke shows us this blessed mother immediately upon her deliverance, lavishing upon her holy infant the cares ordinarily left to strangers. She envelops him in swaddling bands and lays him to rest amid the straw of the manger. She must cloak the new Adam from the cold winter air. Reverence, too, bade her clothe the babe as well as necessity. Cover him, Mary, cover that tender baby body, shield him in thy maiden bosom. Dost thou understand thy motherhood? Hast thou not any perturbation at beholding this thine infant one? Hast thou no fear to bear unto him thy maternal breasts? For what child is this, who reaches up to thee his divine hands? Adore him, even while thou dost nourish him. What time the angels summon new hosts of invisible worshippers. Part 7. The Adoration of the Shepherds To the east of Bethlehem, there extend toward the Dead Sea one of the greenest of valleys. In olden times there stood in that place the Tower of the Herds, near which Jacob had pitched his tent, there to mourn his dearly loved Rachel. Ruth had gleaned in those happy fields, and the boy David tended there his father's flock. Today, in that same valley, the olive trees overshadow a lonely crypt. Consecrated to the holy angels, this sanctuary marks the spot over which the heavens were opened to reveal to earth the coming of its Savior. Certain of the shepherds, says St. Luke, were guarding their flocks and keeping their watches through the night. Then suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared unto them. The glory of the Lord enveloped them in light, and they were seized with a great terror. For to the sons of Israel, no splendor could emanate from the skies without recalling the flaming heights of Sinai and the dread Jehovah, upon whom no man might look upon and live. Straightway the angel reassured them. Be not afraid, he said. I am come to announce good tidings of great joy unto you and unto all your people. Today, in the city of David, is born to you a Savior, the Christ, the Lord, and behold the sign by which you shall know him. 
You shall find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. A manger? An infant? To work out their salvation? What strange tidings are these? The wonderful, the mighty God, the Father of eternity, the Messiah, for whose glorious coming Israel was in expectation, has revealed himself at last in nakedness, in abandonment, in the midst of the straw of a stable. What a sudden reversal of the most dearly cherished dreams of the Jews! They must needs be simple and docile hearts who could receive this message. And so the angel bore the glad tidings neither to the doctors of the law nor to the great ones of the earth, but to these shepherds. And in them he found that which he was seeking, the faith of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Their gentle souls were all aglow upon his words, and suddenly, while their eyes were still drinking in the celestial radiance, all at once they saw that the angel was not alone. A multitude of spirits, all hosts of heaven, surrounded them, and the angelic choir intoned the chant whose echoes resound every day in the holy mystery of the Mass. Glory to God in the highest of the heavens, and peace upon earth unto all men beloved of God. The shepherds heard with rapture this concert of the angels, and when it had faded away into the far depths of the skies, and the messengers of God had gone from their sight, Let us go to Bethlehem, they cried to one another immediately, and see this which has happened, see this which the Lord has made known to us. And making haste to depart, they ascended the hill. Upon its heights they found the cave. In the dumb beast's crib lay an infant, wrapped in swaddling bands and laid amidst the straw. Over him knelt a young mother and a thoughtful and silent man. It was the sign given from on high. They recognized it, and their faith bursting forth into joyous transports, they recounted to those who had surrounded them all that had been said to them concerning this child. The sudden arrival of the shepherds, their search throughout the village had attracted attention. Soon the throng of listeners grew in numbers, and all were in admiration of this tale which the shepherds related. Having rendered their testimony to the heavenly origin of the babe, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, even as he had made known unto them. Midmost of all this concert of delighted homage, the mother of Jesus was silent. Treasuring up all these things, she pondered over them in her heart until the day when St. Luke wrote them down at her inspiration. For it would seem certain that in this portion of his gospel, which is so entirely different from all the other accounts, we are reading the very words of Mary. This story, 
at once so simple and so tender, betrays the virgin's hand and the mother's heart. Part 8. The Presentation of Baby Jesus at the Temple in Jerusalem Eight days later, when the babe was to be circumcised, the evangelist Luke simply remarks, on the eighth day he was circumcised. The Christ, in order to fulfill all justice, was required to endure this humiliation and bear in his body the stigma of the sins which he had taken upon himself. Yet he only underwent circumcision that he might set us free from its bondage by substituting for it a purification more elevated, one holy spiritual, that of the heart and of the heart's evil desires. It was the time for giving the child his name. The angel had informed them that by a heavenly mandate that he should be called Jesus. It was a name that spoke of salvation to the Jews, and, as a form of the name Joshua, recalled thoughts of their entrance into the promised land and of the return from captivity. The sublimest of the titles of the Christ, the Messiah, only compasses in its meaning the majesty of the Son of God, that atonement by which he was consecrated king and pontiff. The name Jesus signifies one who has loved us even to the dying for us. The law commanded that this firstborn should be presented in the temple, as it is written, Every male child that cometh from the mother's womb shall be consecrated to the Lord. And it was necessary for Mary to be purified, since the Levitical canons declared every woman unclean after the birth of her offspring. Such was the obligation to which the Virgin submitted herself, although she knew nothing of the common misfortunes of women in her stainless generation. So Joseph and Mary went up to Jerusalem to consecrate Jesus to the Lord. The five shekels of the sanctuary relieved him of the obligation to remain as a server at the altars, and the sacrifice of the poor was offered for the purification of them both. Now there was at this time in Jerusalem a just man, and one who feared God, named Simeon, who lived in expectation of the consolation of Israel. The Holy Ghost was with him and it had been revealed to him by his Spirit of God that he should not surely die before he had seen the Christ of the Lord. The terms in which St. Luke makes use in speaking of this aged man indicate that he had in mind a distinguished personage, perhaps even the famous scribe Rabban Simeon, son of Hillel. Indeed, there is a perfect resemblance in this sketch of his to the historical Simeon, a similarity in age and residence, an equally high-souled zeal with the same saintliness of life. At the moment when Mary and Joseph were approaching the sanctuary, that indwelling spirit, moving within the old man's heart, was conducting him to the temple. There was nothing in their exterior to draw his gaze upon them. A poor family making their sin offering 
while in the arms of the mother there lay a little child. And yet it was enough for him. To the eyes of the seer, this infant appeared what indeed he was, the long-expected salvation, the consolation for which he had waited for so long, the one and only object of his vows. Simeon took him into his arms, and in an ecstasy of the divine spirit he intoned this canticle. Now hath it come to pass, O Lord, that thou dost deliver thy servant. According to thy word, he will go in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, that salvation which thou hast prepared in the face of all the nations, even as a light which shall reveal itself unto the Gentiles and the glory of Israel thy people. Meanwhile, the father and the mother of the child were filled with wonders at the things which he had spoken of him, and Simeon blessed him. But as his eyes fell on Mary, he perceived in prophetic vision all that this mother was to suffer. Then holding up the babe before her, he whom you now look upon, he said, is for the ruin and the resurrection of many in Israel. He shall be a man rejected and denied. As for you, a sword of sorrow shall pierce your soul. Then, reverting to the son of Mary and to the trials that awaited him, he revealed what would ensue. And thus he added, The thoughts which many hide in their hearts shall be revealed. That is to say, in the presence of the Christ, he who was to be for the scandal and scorn of this world, before him all secret thoughts should be unveiled. He would distinguish in this way between those who dreamed of riches, glory, and temporal happiness as part of the coming of the Messiah, and those who, seeking him for himself, are prepared to welcome him under whatever form he may appear. Mary listened in silence to this menacing prediction, such as she appears to us now in the temple, such as she ever remains throughout the whole gospel, enveloped in her modesty, her heart at times flooded with joys which no language can express, but oftener resigned under the sword which even now tore his mother's heart in expectation of the end. There was present also a prophetess named Anna, daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Aser, of a very advanced age. She had lived seven years with her husband since her virginity, and she had remained a widow up to her eighty-fourth year, never leaving the temple and serving God night and day in fasting and prayer. It was this zeal for the house of God which merited for her that she should find therein, and therein adore, her Savior. As she was coming into the temple at that same moment, she recognized the child whom Simeon had blessed, rendered thanks to heaven for unveiling to her eyes this majesty, and praising the Lord her God, she spoke of him to all who awaited the redemption of Israel.
This concludes the Return to Order Moments Christmas presentation. The Nativity according to Abbé Constant-Henri Fouard. Thank you for listening. Before we conclude, we want listeners who enjoyed this broadcast to know that this classic book, which has been long out of print, is available through most online book retailers. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website www.returntoorder.org or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.